This is Beyond Belief Sobriety, a podcast and community for people who are seeking or who have found a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Hello, thank you for spending some of your time today to listen to this episode. I hope it's a good experience for you and that it adds a little something extra to your store of recovery capital. My guest is Joy Andrioli, a licensed marriage and family therapist who also happens to be a person in long-term recovery. We had an interesting conversation about her book, The Recovery Cycle. But before we get started, let's take a moment to thank our sponsor, Soberlink. We need to talk about alcohol recovery in the workplace. Talking about sobriety and proving it to your employer can be so difficult. And our friends at Soberlink want to help. If you need a reliable way to present documented proof of sobriety to a boss or loved one, Soberlink can help. Soberlink is a high-tech portable breathalyzer system that uses facial recognition technology to verify identity, has unique sensors to ensure that no other air sources are being used, and sends results directly to your specified contacts so there's no questioning whether or not you took the test and whether or not you altered the reporting. This is why Soberlink's remote alcohol monitoring system is considered the gold standard. Being in recovery from alcohol does not define the future of your career. Let Soberlink help. Learn more about Soberlink and request an exclusive $50 off promo code by visiting Soberlink.com BBS. And now, episode 286, The Recovery Cycle with Joy Andrioli. I begin the interview by asking Joy about the inspiration behind writing this book. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. I live in Los Angeles. I work in L.A. And I, like you said, I'm an author of The Recovery Cycle. And uh, I like to hike and I like sobriety and anything recovery I love. So that's sort of the short version. And what inspired me to write this book was, um, well, a couple of things. One is, you know, later what I came to know is that there are a lot of people that have misconceptions about what recovery is, or they think it might be confining, or they think they've got to go to this program or do it this way or that way. And I see recovery as being much more free than that. And it's really about freedom and and making and having your own choices and uh, living the life you want, basically. But what was happened is I went back to graduate school um, in my 40s after being sober quite a while, decided I wanted to become a marriage and family therapist. And I was in a chemical dependency class and the instructor was drawing the addiction cycle on a whiteboard. And as I was looking at this, I thought, wow, you know, there is a recovery cycle. And it literally in my mind's eye coalesced literally in front of me. And I saw it on the whiteboard. I wrote it down in my notes and I went up to the professor right after and showed him my wonderful find. And he said, Oh, that doesn't work. (laughs) But (laughs) what I know and what I knew in my heart is that it's a process just much like the addiction cycle represents what it's like. And every addict I know can identify with each part of that. Same thing with the recovery cycle, which in a sense is the positive mirror image of the addiction cycle. If you read that part, um, I mean, you can see it. So so the inspiration came to me uh, after that class, not to prove my professor wrong, 
but more to um, fulfill, you know, the desire that I had to represent recovery, the emotional journey of recovery in a very user-friendly visual way. Okay. Yeah. And when, uh, as you, as you write about the recovery cycle and I, I had kind of a similar experience when I first got sober, um, I was, I was young also, and it was a long time ago, but I, uh, I remember being stunned that, um, I had this problem and I just didn't seem to be aware of it, or I just didn't seem to be able to acknowledge it. And so I would go to the library and I'd read all these books that I could find on addiction and just so I could figure out what was going on. And I stumbled across one that had a graph and it was really, it was really a curve and, and it started like it showed a person descending into the depths of addiction where they finally hit bottom. And then it shows them coming out on the recovery end. And I remember looking at that graph and I was just like turning the corner. You know, I was at that point where he admits he has a problem, you know, it's like just now getting better. And then I saw the rest of the progression and it was just something that just gave me a little bit of hope that, you know, there's a, there's another side to this. So I I had that, I had that experience, and I also believe that there is certainly a, a cycle that we go through in our recovery. And it, in your book, you mentioned that there's four cornerstones to the recovery cycle, and I wonder if that might be a good way to approach this, or if you know of another way that you want to talk about what you've written, we can just go with that. Sure. Uh, and by the way, I think I know the graph you're talking about. There are a lot of, yes, I do. It dips down and it comes back up and there are a lot of things yes. to understand on the way down and then coming back up. Yes. Yep. Uh, too many to read, right? Yeah. Read yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was fascinated by that. Yeah. That's me going down. <laughs> I'm getting there. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it all starts like what you're, what you're talking about. It all starts with just knowing, wow, maybe I have a problem. I think I have a problem and people that think they have a problem, there's probably a problem. You know, if, you, if, if you're thinking that there's, there probably is a problem. So, um, so how do I discover this? I talk about four cornerstones or essential elements. And uh, first, the, the idea of recovery. I mean, I believe it's a process of becoming an observer of my thoughts and my feelings while where my actions are progressively aligned with my values and what I hold dear. But I got to do that sober. I mean, I don't, people relapse, I totally get it. Um, But if I want to progress in this way and be, and have my behavior aligned with my ideals for myself and just my own innermost self, I need to do that sober. So I kind of state that pretty clearly in the book. Very, I think like three or four times, abstinence, abstinence, abstinence. um, And and one of the sections there is really critical. You can't really be in recovery if if you're not abstinent. Right. And but I also say because I have QR codes, if you notice, at the end of each chapter where I have a little video coming on. But I talk about also the idea that if you're even contemplating sobriety and you and you're falling and you're and you keep drinking or using or whatever it is you're doing compulsively, um, don't give up, you know, keep keep reading and like you were doing, keep gathering the information. So um, so this idea of recovery that I have anyway, that I think the recovery cycle fulfills and if we talk, look at the addiction cycle, we have, everybody can identify the preoccupation at the 12 o'clock. We're looking at a circle. you got preoccupation. You're thinking about it. It's all you can think about. You drop on down to the rituals. What are you doing? Now I'm going to drive to the, the liquor store or I'm going to uh, 
you know, drive by the dealer's house, whatever your rituals are to get you to use, that you, you, that you use to use, come down to the six o'clock and then you're using, we know how that goes, and then come back up to feeling guilt, shame, and despair. And if you're, if you're in that place, you, you know you have a problem and you can identify pretty quickly where you are. And all that drops down into isolation, this really awful feeling of isolation. So the recovery cycle, like I was talking about, being this positive um, side of life, basically, starts with a recovery focus. So now the preoccupation is replaced with a focus. And a focus is more deliberate than being preoccupied or distracted by something that might not be good for, for us, right? So we have a recovery focus. It's the first cornerstone, I would say. And maybe in the beginning, that recovery focus is just, I don't want this pain anymore. It could be, a, it usually is as simple as that. How do I not live this way anymore? So, but then over time, as you know, you and I, we've been sober a long time. Those things change. It's like, oh, well, maybe I want an education. Maybe I want to, maybe I want to talk to my spouse a little better. Right? You know, whatever the thing is uh, that like to be a little bit, bit more emotionally sober. So for starting out with the recovery focus, we define what that is for ourselves and how are we going to do that? Well, we got to find people that can help us do that. So my belief is we do that through people that have done it before, that have gone before us to sort out how we're going to do it. But it's ultimately our choice to do. So you start out with the recovery focus, come down to recovery rituals. The rituals can be meetings. It doesn't matter. It can be 12-step. It could be any recovery program. And today there are so many options out there that... I felt really, really strongly about, um, you know, when I got sober, it was the 12 step program was basically it. And, you know, that, that was it. So, and, and to me, I had a really open mind and it works. It worked for me because I just, I hung out with the people that I liked. Right. I, didn't like, I didn't like the dogmatic ones. And I right. liked the people that were really open and ha had an open mind and non-judgmental people. I think that's really important in choosing somebody. So, um, so anyway, these recovery rituals replace the rituals of using and with the, within those recovery rituals, going to a meeting, calling your sober guide, whatever it is that you're doing, at least I know if I want to fulfill the dreams in my life, I've got to take some positive action or contrary action, which is the third at, at the six o'clock now for coming down. You following? <laughs> Hope I'm not giving too much for the listeners. <laughs> So we, I'll just recap recovery, focus on top, heading down to the recovery rituals. Then we do contrary action and contrary action is positive action or self-affirming action rather than engaging in any self-destructive behaviors. And, you know, I've seen a lot of people in sobriety continue to do with their secondary addictions or even in their communication with others, it can be very self-destructive. So the contrary action is more positive behaviors. And we come back up to now, not guilt, shame, and despair of using, but we have a range of feelings, an expanded range of feelings that we can experience through taking these positive actions. And, um, you know, and these, these feelings can be the ability to sit through feeling embarrassed. I talk about that being like my least my least favorite uh, feeling in the book is embarrassment. I do not like being embarrassed. Embarrassment, shame, good feelings. You'd be surprised. A lot of people have to desensitize to be feeling good in their lives. 
So now we have this expanded range of feelings that we've, we've come to after taking this contrary action. And I believe uh, with the tide of support with these recovery rituals, it sends us right back up to a kind of a, a more of a focus, positive focus on what we or I or what you want for your life in terms of your recovery. So did that mm-hmm. explain yeah. answer your question? Yeah, it does. And I, I think that the re- there's something to the, having uh, rituals, uh, recovery rituals. Um, I recall um, when I was really newly sober, okay, there would be time before a meeting. I might have 30 minutes before a meeting or whatever. And I did not know what to do with my time. All I knew if I had extra time is I needed to go to a bar. That's what I did with my extra time. <laughs> right. You know? So I had to learn, I had to develop a different ritual. You know, I don't just go to a bar, you know, I I do something else. Like, you know, you can actually show up at these meetings early. (laughs) Right. And I started doing that. And then you start meeting people and and so forth. So, you know, um, and that became a ritual so that when I would uh, get off work, you know, that would be how I would unwind, you know, and rather than going to the bar the old way, now I'm doing the new way. I see my friends at the, at the meeting. And it became well, a ritual. T- yeah, and what you're talking about is you're meeting your friend at a meeting, and and I believe that the recovery rituals need to include their you know activities that include other people that are like-minded people that you like being around them, and that have meaning for you. You know, if I'm going, so there's got to be other people. Yes, you can read a rec- do a recovery ritual reading spiritual literature, but I believe a lot of those rituals need to include other sober people that uh, that I like and that I that have the same values or, or something I'm getting, there's some meaning out of it. Otherwise it's not going to, why would I do it if I don't like it? You know, if I don't like the program or I don't like, you know, it, it's the people, the people in it. And so that recovery cycle where the addiction cycle drops down into isolation, the recovery cycle, really, if, if we live it fully and engage in it insert ourselves into it, the whole thing, we can drop down to feeling a greater connection to, you know, oneself, others, and maybe something greater if you believe in that, mm-hmm. which isn't a requirement. And that's really true. Uh, based on my experience anyway, uh, when I was drinking, um, I was very, very much isolated because I was hiding so much of myself from other people. I was hiding a large part of my life from others and myself. And um, yeah, I was kind of a loner. I drink in bars, but I wasn't connecting with anybody or anything like that. And the stark difference in recovery was all of a sudden I had all these, I had actually people in my life I could talk to and just by luck, I guess I I wound up at a group where there are a lot of guys my age that we were all in our twenties. We're all in our twenties, early thirties or whatever. And we bonded and it was really the first time ever in my life that I had like really friends that I could talk about things that I'd never even would think about talking about, you know, real stuff. And, uh, that was my connection. I guess I was really getting connected, making a connection with other people by learning to be honest and open and, and, and learning about them. Right. Shared experience. You know, we, we have a common shared experience in our, you know, pain and in our joys. And that's it. I think it's vital. I mean, I make that point too, that it's vital to have, I suggest that is, is, is having a part of the focus is having healthy, caring relationships. Um, and uh, what was his name? Ernie Larson. He wrote a book called stage one and stage two recovery. And he talks about stage two recovery being, 
Now, including that healthy, caring relationships has got to be included in that. So I really believe that too. Yeah. You wrote about relationships quite a bit, um, in this book and, and well, there's a whole section on, on it too. Um, and I, and I thought that was interesting because, you know, when you really think about it, that was, that's probably the biggest challenge any of us ever have in, in life in general is just, just relationships, right? Whether it be with your spouse or people at work, um, and, getting sober, that was probably one of my first, you know, hurdles I had to overcome was, you know, dealing with my, my family of origin, you know, and, and, and learning how to be comfortable around them and, uh, learning how to have relationships with them as a sober person. And, um, it it was a difficult thing to navigate. And then as you, as you get sober and you start forming other relationships, uh, there's, they just require work. I mean, (laughs) they're just work. <laughs> There's no way around it. There's no way around it. And which is good because it helps you. It helps us as human beings, I think, you know. Yeah, you know, when you're talking when I went to a recovery facility, I went to a state-run place when I first got sober. I stayed there for 3 months. And when I got there, they said you can't talk to your family. Can't talk to your family. I think it was a month. It might have been a couple of months, but I, I know it was at least a month. And my mother was so mad. I was very young at the time. She was very mad. So you know, and, and I didn't share in, uh, in my recovery groups for about 12 years. I was so afraid of people. I was so afraid of people. Yeah, it really took me a long, unless I was nudged by someone or I was asked. I was so afraid of being judged. So I really feel so strongly about, um, about all of us supporting each other. Um, so, so when you're talking about that, that con- the conditioning, I think from, and this isn't to blame the parents or anything, but the conditioning that, that we have, a lot of people have that I know in recovery, myself included, um, over the years, and that I build upon within my own self, that stuff that grinds away at my self-esteem, all of that conditioning. I mean, we, we get sober, a lot of us, and we still have that conditioning. So I'm bringing that now to my relationships. I was, people were not sources of love. So I was afraid, you know, so I wasn't going to talk to anybody, but I did find a trustworthy person and trustworthy is with somebody that, that uh, I take a risk on and, uh, you know, they, they build a trustworthy record over time. That's how I, what I think about trust. So, um, so yeah, so getting into relationship is a huge, huge part of recovery and not getting stuck in these dysfunctional relationships. And it takes work to unwind all that conditioning and to not make blame my drug of choice. My husband and I were talking about, we talk about blame being our drug of choice for so, for so long. We wanted to blame each other when, when I felt bad and he wanted to blame me. And, and it's kind of great to get to a place where I recognize that. And I think my book talks maybe a little bit about that. Um, like you said, on that section of feelings. Uh, to where we ca- I can really get in touch with how I feel, what I want, and what I don't want, and then communicate that to others and the world in a in a rational way and hopefully a joyful way. You know, when I read when I read that section about feelings, what what, it, what got me thinking was that you know even now to this day I I can be so reactive, you know, uh, not really stopping to pause to think you know, to process or to even identify whatever it is that I'm feeling. I'd never even stop to think about that. You know, um, it's just 
something's boiling up inside of me and then I, I react. Um, I can say there's been improvement, <laughs> but there's still, but that's, I guess when I was reading your book, that's what was getting, th- I was thinking about was that. And then, and then you wrote about um, how, kind of, how kind of how we're built in nature that we have this instinct to either, you know, run or f- fight or, or freeze. And that, I, and I could see that in me in, in different situations, you know, reacting just that way out of, out of some sort of an instinct. But that as a human being, I don't have to do that. I can actually st- stop and, 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 and name whatever it is that I'm feeling. And I've heard that before and I've read that before and other people have talked about it. But, but for whatever reason, when I was reading your book, it really um, kind of made me think about it more. Just the next time I'm feeling something is to maybe – just tell myself what I'm feeling. Is that what you would say? Get out of feelings wheel. You know, it's so funny. The feelings wheel. I, I just poo-pooed that for a long time, but the feelings wheel is very helpful. And uh, yeah, because it talks about all these, you can look at it and say, oh, what am I feeling? You know, there's some basic ones, but then there's a lot there. But but yes, name it. I mean, Dan Siegel says, name it to tame it. And um, it's like, okay, so you see the visual. If I have a feeling, I react, think later. That's just being, re- that's just, you know, reacting. But if I have a feeling, run it through my thinking brain. What am I feeling? What am I not feeling? What do I want? What do I don't want based on that? And then I act. It's a different thing. So it's feel, think, act. I'm touching my stomach. I go through my head. My feelings are dialysized through my brain in a sense. And then I can act. And by the way, you know, the conversation becomes much different with whoever it is I'm talking to. I'm sorry for hitting the microphone, but the, but the conversation becomes a much different conversation and a much more loving one and accepting one if I'm with somebody else who's doing that. So if I'm saying, gee, you know what? I feel, you know, doing this podcast, my husband said, you know, I'm feeling a little uh, disappointed. We aren't going to be able to go to our dinner at our normal time or something like that. You know, and it's different than... Why did you schedule it for, you know, that's a very different conversation. And I got to say, oh, okay. Yeah. I, I understand that. I've, I've felt a little that way on my side too. And you've, you know, it's, it's a, just a different conversation when we're talking about that. And I think uh, it's not really addressed too much. And especially in, you know, in a lot of programs, we talk about actions being, uh, and I believe this too. Actions are our actions are very important. You know, acting our way into right thinking, and such. But um, anyway, I'm go, kind of going off on a tangent, so I'm reeling it back in. <laughs> no, I, um, um, I, in my in my marriage, um, it's it's kind of interesting. My wife is not a person in recovery, uh, and so she doesn't have a program she works, but she seems to just kind of naturally have have this innate ability to not just be so reactive and so forth as I am. And one of the things that I noticed about her and me and what I learned about myself in this is how our, the environments we grew up in kind of form what is acceptable to us. So, and this paints me in a really bad light, but I, I, for example, I grew up in a family where people just yelled and screamed. It was, it was like all the time. It was yelling and screaming. She did not experience that. If I ever raise my voice in this house, she shuts that down as being totally inappropriate. She doesn't under, you know, where I, 
the first time that happened to me, I thought, wait, this is, this all is what I knew. And, you know, um, it can happen. I can, I might, I might raise my voice. I don't try, try not to, but if I do, I know, I kind of know where that's coming from. It's coming from how I was raised in the household I lived in. Um, and there's that big difference. She did not have that. So good for her, but she has really kind of helped me in that she knows how to set those boundaries. She can say, no, that's not acceptable, you know, which is something I can learn to do. But it's amazing to me that she knows to do that just naturally. Yeah. I always am amazed at people too, that they somehow, but, but you know what? They don't end up in my office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they don't end up. So I don't know a lot of who they are. <laughs> But, you know, impulse control is really a hallmark of sobriety. And, you know, you mentioned being, you know, the fight, fight, freeze, freeze. You know, we're, we're animals. You know, we're human animals, but we're still animals. So there's not going to be, it's okay to make, we're not going to be perfect people. I'm not going to be perfect. I thought, oh, everybody's like, everything is always on a rational level because those wounds, I would say, you know, and growing up in a home, like what you described, everybody yelling, that's what your modeling was. You know, we, our parents are our demonstrator models, you know, man to man, woman to woman. They're the demonstrator models. So that's how we learn. And basically they're gods, not that, you know, uh, and, um, and, and, and it gets the first three years, it's, it's almost a hard, hard drive, you know? So we're constantly having to do software updates. I, like you said at the beginning, it's constant. It is, it's work. It's a cycle. It's a process. It's not over and done with. It is a continuous process because the animal part of me is going to run and, and because, and I think I talk about this. Yeah. About, about our survival is at stake. You know, my very survival was at stake at, in my mind as a child at times. So I would either mostly shut up to survive, you know, and, and that lasted, like I said, it lasted a long time into recovery where I didn't really think that I had a right to be, feel, think, and share in my own way. But here I, here I am now. So that's what the recovery cycle, the process of recovery really has done for me anyway. Yes. I also like the idea that people can decide for themselves. They can, they can kind of design their own program. I mean, there's some parameters you lay down, you know, that there's some, some things that you might want to look at here. But you decide for yourself what you want your recovery to look like. And I think that that's a really useful thing for someone who's kind of that's that's new and that and that might change later but i i recall like for me it was my focus was just was just not drinking but if if i can move to a uh, i think a, a place even anybody really if you can move away from that as your primary focus i guess but to have some positive goal or dream or vision of what you want your sober life to be like is something yes. that I kind of was lacking in the beginning. I just was, you know, it took me longer than I, longer than I would have wanted in hindsight to actually begin making, you know, having goals of what I wanted to achieve in my life. So in other words, for me, I was sober for 10 years and my life was pretty much centered around being sober and with that community 
And then I, when my, my father died and I realized, gosh, there's a lot of things that I want out of my life that I'm not, that I'm not getting. And so I had to, I had to decide what I, I had to recover the dreams that I had, I guess, from, that I lost from my drinking. And I kind of, I kind of think that, um, I kind of got that from your book that you can decide, you know, what you want your life to look like, what you want your sober life to look like. Yes. How, how old were you when you got sober? Oh, I was 25. I was 25. So then 10 years later, I, I go back to school. I start achieving, I start making goals to get things that I always thought I would have in life. I always thought, you know, I'd get married, I'd have a job, I'd get a house, all this kind of stuff. Well, you know, by the time I was 35, I really wasn't, I was just sober, but I really wasn't achieving anything in my life. And I decided that I needed to do that. I went back to school and got degrees and got married and all that kind of stuff. Which was great, was which was good, but it was an exciting time for me. That in hindsight, I wish I would have started it sooner. Yeah, you know, it's funny when you talk about when I think about the word recovery, like the action or process of um, of regaining control over what we've lost. And yeah, and so I think that what when I got sober, it was a different because I knew that I'd wanted to go to college, but forget it. I, you know, I was 20 years. But so when I did get sober, my, my guide said, you know, you stay sober a year and then and then talk about going back to school. Just get your sober feet. So all I knew is I wanted to go to school. I didn't have some grand vision about what I wanted to do. I mean, when I was five, I knew I thought I needed to straighten my family out. But um, <laughs> so then all these years later. Um, so, so yeah, I think it's really important too that we honor, you know, the, the very soul of somebody of, of what, what it is that they want in their life rather than just, you know, put the plug in the jug and quit drinking and, and, and get on this hamster wheel of, of just making, I, I think that recovery is central to my life for sure. You know, obviously I've written a book about it, but it's totally central. It gives me everything in my life, but I always do my best to re- maintain a vision of what, what I want for myself, what I want my life to look like, the kind of person I want to be. And that, and I want to be congruent with all of those things with my actions being congruent with that. And, but having a vision is where it starts. But the other thing, you know, it took you 10 years. I'm thinking, you know, my question is like, what, what was it for those 10 years that, that kept you from that? Is it because you didn't have permission was yeah what was it it's a good it's a good it's a good question i don't know um you know i i I don't i don't really have an answer for that i i think that that's a good question though something i should ponder and maybe have an answer with for someday but where where i was in my life I, i recall um my first dream for what my sober life would look like i was in jail waiting for waiting for to see the judge for my last dui and i thought man I just don't care. I, I just want to be sober. I don't ever want to be in this situation again. I don't care if I just have a job pushing a broom in a little apartment somewhere. I just, that's all I wanted. And I was really satisfied with just not getting thrown in jail anymore, basically. And it's all I want to really wanted out of my life. But that I say that, but at the same time though, I, I really started um, during that, during that, that 10 year period, I was socializing a lot with people that I had never had that before. And so maybe I needed that, but I I spent that time. I spent that time getting to know people, mostly guys. uh, And um, 
socializing. And that's what I did, you know, for that, that, that 10 years. And then it, there was a shock to my system, I guess, when my father died that I, that I had to reassess what I really wanted out of life. And there was, and I did, and I started doing that. But yeah, maybe that's what it was. I just was at that period. I just was in this, this comfortable zone, I guess, where I was, I was doing fine. I had friends and I was happy and I wasn't really thinking. I guess I thought that the, I, I, no, I'm sorry. (laughs) I think that I just kind of gave up on that whole idea that I could go back to school and that I could achieve anything. I think I did give up on that idea. I did. And then when I, and then when my father died, I was kind of, I was comparing my life to his and I wasn't, I didn't like the difference. And so I decided to make some changes, but I think, I think I kind of gave up. I gave up. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, when I went back to school, thank you for sharing that, by the way, I I really enjoyed listening to that. Um, You know, we give up on ourselves. And I was told my first semester in class, I wrote this story about this fantastic roommate I have. I thought, I'm going to be a writer. I gave it to the professor. And she said, you know what? You really need some work. And what I heard was, you write awful. You should never even consider it. And so what did I do? Completely put that dream aside, right? So it's so important to listen to that. Like, And when I went back to school, I thought, I don't know if I'm going to be able to, I'm not smart enough to get a master's or, you know, like, so, so, but I did it anyway. Right. And I late is great. I did it. And um, so what I'm saying with you is identify with that. Okay. The other thing I want to say about what you just said was, you know, uh, so what do we do in life? You know, I structure my time and I get my stroke needs met. I'm also a transactional analysis practitioner. Nobody needs to know what that is, but, but, but it's a, Getting my strokes are a unit of recognition that tell me I exist and they can either be positive or negative. So it sounds to me like when I was hearing you talk as you you were structuring your time around this positive experience with these guys and how important that was for you. Right. I don't know. But so I like to think of like, how am I structuring my time? Because I want to structure it around positive experiences with people, positive strokes, relationships. And something that's meaningful to me as well. Yeah. So. Okay. Now I'd like to segue into another topic that is of interest to, to listeners of this particular podcast. And that's the topic of spirituality. And I'll tell you, I've been all over the map with this. Okay. So when I, when I first, okay, so I'm an, I'm an atheist. I just realized I was an atheist, like, I don't know, when years ago or whatever. And I was sober 25 years old and I realized I'm an atheist, but at that when I when I when I re- had that realization, I thought, okay, I'm still spiritual. I'm, I'm I need to have the spiritual component to my recovery, and I need to be able to describe my recovery in spiritual terms. And I was totally comfortable with that. But then over time, I got to this point where no, I I don't need any of this mystical stuff. I'm just going to describe everything. I'm just going to use practical everyday language. And now I've come back around again. I had a conversation with a professor of philosophy who, was, who um, had written a book about William James. And she told me, she said, um, she said that she thinks it's a shame that the humanity has been taken out of psychology. 
and that William James wouldn't like that because William James, when he discussed, when he talked about psychology, his father's psychology, he, he spoke in real human terms. He spoke in language that not clinical language. And I, I thought to myself, that is right. I mean, dense language though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But she's, I thought, yeah, you know, I think that that's what really touched me when I was first hearing other people's stories was the, not a clinical approach, but the real human, the human part of it. So I'm now getting back to this, to this side of me that says, no, I think I, I think I do need more of that um, spiritual, I guess, language is what I would call it. Well, what does spirituality mean to you? Well, that's a good question too. I think that spiritual, this is what spirituality means to me. This is how I would see it now. Spirituality would be like art. It would be a way of expressing myself that, that under, that, that, that sees my, that that's beyond just science. That's beyond just me being a mammal that it, that expresses my feelings in a way like an artist would. It's a different way. It's a way of communicating is how it is to me. Um, I don't know if I'm feeling a connection with anything um, like uh, per se uh, or or, or drawing power from anything. It's more of just a, a feeling of appreciation and expressing and describing something, um, and as just as a human being, as, a, as someone having experience and not trying to understand it, but just, just to have a conversation about it, to not have to know it, why, I guess. Why what? Sense. To not have to, to not have to have the scientific explanation behind it. Right. Right. <laughs> to exactly. Not, to not have like, to not have to worry about my dopamine or whatever it is and just be a person. Exactly. And I believe that's what you're talking about is individuals like me caring about you, you caring about like me caring about me, me caring about you, you caring about you and you caring about me. It's like this thing to me, it's this on, it's not religion for sure. It's a, it's, and, and people will say, Oh, some it's God that people use the word God, but, but it's but it's almost this shared spirit, I would say. It's a shared spirit that. Um, but I need to develop develop a relationship. I need to develop this relationship with myself, my my values, my action. Like all of that is mixed into this idea of spirituality, where I'm for sure connecting with other people, but I can also feel it when I'm alone. But I also need other people. Right. Yeah, uh, you when you wrote about being feeling that connection with other people, um, it, it's that it's that that feeling of being safe and being being safe, feeling that you're loved, being with your with people that understand you. And I and I was thinking about that um, from from my growing up years, and I would have that like with my grandmother mm-hmm. when I was with my grandmother. I always felt safe, protected, 
there was a warm feeling of comfort with her that I never had anywhere else. But I recall having that same feeling sitting around in AA meetings of just being safe and comfortable, I guess. Right. That's connection. And that's a connection. That is connection. And you got that from attendant, from attendance. I mean, first your first your focus was I just don't I want to stay out of jail. Right. <laughs> that you wanted to do that. And you found these guys. Yeah. And you probably just did some other things too to to keep you uh to keep you um um sober. And, li- and living a life that you want to, I mean, you met a, w- a wife, you have, you know, you were doing something. Right. So, and, and again, that greater sense of connection, it's like, it comes from all of that. And that connection is, I believe, spiritual in nature. And again, I do not mean that in no. a religious way right. at all. Right, right. And yeah. And I don't even get in debates anymore about that. People, the, uh, if you can go, you can go on Facebook groups um, uh, for people in recovery. No, you can. <laughs> Actually, I dropped out of all of them except for the one I created for this for this podcast. But yes, I dropped out of them all because I couldn't stand it. Why argue about recovery? There's nothing to really argue about it because it's everybody's own individual personal experience, right? Exactly. Exactly. I love that. And I love your, I love the open-mindedness that, that will from, from you and from, from a lot of other people, but yes, there are that, there is that faction that is that have their own, their own way. And that's fine. That's fine. But I like the open-minded. Yeah, me too. We, we all belong. We all belong here sober. You know, we all had a problem. So any path is fine. Yes. I like having you on here. Anytime I have a therapist on here, I always feel like, you know what? I got a, I got a therapy session out of this podcast episode. <laughs> but thank you for that. Is there, are there any final thoughts, anything that we didn't cover that you think would be important for listeners to, to know that, you, that you'd like to talk about before we sign off? I, have, I always have a ton of final thoughts, but, I'm gonna, but I'll say this one thing really quickly about that spirituality. Somewhere in here, there, I do have a study on that in that chapter about spirituality and how it um, enhances well-being across the board. So there is a whoops, there is a study that points to that. So it's not like it's, you know, that that's it. There is a study, <laughs> and I say let's teach it in the classroom. Let's not teach religion, but let's let's open let's let's because a lot of people are talking about spirituality. Final thoughts. Let's see. Uh, you know, just if you're struggling. Just don't give up. Don't give up. Find somebody that you feel safe with. Find somebody that's uh, that has no investment in your decisions and your choices, and that supports you being you. Provided you know you're not hurting yourself or other people. Um, but even if you choose to hurt yourself by drinking more, you know we don't have control over that. We could, you know, find a trustworthy person uh, that you can confide in and be honest with, and that's. That's sort of where it all starts. I like that. And I will put links out here uh, where people can find your website. They can find your book. And I do encourage um, listeners to, to check this book out. I, I enjoyed reading it. I'll read it again. Um, it's one of those books that you, you might read through once and you might want to go back, back through it again. Um, but I, I would kind of recommend kind of you know going from beginning to end, read it, get a good idea of, of the book, and then figuring out what you want to do with it. 
But I, I liked it a lot. I think it would be a great book for anybody that is interested in exploring the idea of, of their recovery and what they want it to look like. So regardless they, of what program, Oh yeah, you know, it doesn't, it works with any pro it's not because basically it's just a diet. It's a, again, it's a, you know, visual repre- representation of this emotional journey that we're all going to do. So if you just get a space over. Yeah. So thank yeah. you. I appreciate it. Joy. Thank you. For thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you would like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.